This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latte from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and the New Yorker. Welcome to the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. In 1935, the young John F. Kennedy sent his college essay to the admissions department at Harvard. And here it is in full. The reasons that I have for wishing to go to Harvard are several. I feel that Harvard can give me a better background and a better liberal education than any other university. I've always wanted to go there as I have felt that it is not just another college, but is a university with something definite to offer. Then, too, I would like to go to the same college as my father. To be a Harvard man is an enviable distinction and one that I sincerely hope I shall attain. That was it. That was the whole essay. And if ever there was an example of the presumptions of privilege, to say nothing of weak writing, well, there it is. And by the way, he wrote almost the exact same essay for his application to Princeton. Kennedy, of course, graduated from Harvard, as did his father, who was at that time one of the richest men in the United States. But maybe times are changing. Harvard is now the target of a lawsuit on legacy admissions, which, of course, favors the children of graduates. Graduates who, almost inevitably, are in the upper income brackets. Congressional Democrats and even some prominent Republicans, as well as the Biden administration, have also come out against legacy admissions. Suddenly, it's a big issue. Today, I'm directing the Department of Education to analyze what practices help build a more inclusive and diverse student bodies and what practices hold that back. Practices like legacy admissions and other systems. Senator Jeff Merkley and Congressman Jamal Bowman, both Democrats, introduced a bill yesterday that would ban legacy admissions. Congressman Bowman argued... All students deserve a fair shot at getting into college. But he said- I'm joined now by Miguel Cardona, the Secretary of Education. Cardona began his career as an elementary school teacher, then a principal, and he was the Commissioner of Education for the state of Connecticut before his appointment to the cabinet. Mr. Secretary, legacy admissions have been around for an awfully long time, and why now? Why is this the moment for the Biden administration, of all administrations, to make a move on legacy admissions? Well, what we're doing is not necessarily making a move on legacy admissions. What we're doing is revisiting uh, college admissions in general, under which legacy admissions is one of those. I think we have an opportunity as a country in light of a what I think to be a very wrong decision by the Supreme Court, uh, ending affirmative action, to reevaluate 
how we're uh, communicating to our students on uh, their ability to find success in higher education. I think we have to recommit to making sure we're opening more pathways to students, in particular students who have historically been underrepresented. Even with affirmative action, we had work to do to make sure that the diversity on our campus reflects the diversity of our country. So I think it's the time now for leaders in higher education to really put their heads together and um, chase the ideal. Now, admissions directors at places like Harvard and Yale and Princeton and all those places have said they're going to be hurt very badly in their diversity efforts because of the end of affirmative action as dictated by the Supreme Court. Now you've launched an investigation of Harvard admissions. What do you expect to find? What what do you expect to find as the present tense uh, situation and how will it be affected by uh, the Supreme Court decision, and how will getting rid of legacy admissions affect the picture? What's, what, what, what's the present tense and what's the ideal you're headed toward? Uh, there was a request for an investigation out of the Office for Civil Rights stating that legacy admissions was unfair. Um, I can't speak specifically to a, an investigation, but to your earlier point, you know, a lot of university presidents are lamenting the Supreme Court decision because it's going to make their job harder. Very soon, we're going to release uh, the initial guidance that uh, interprets, you know, from our, our our legal team here what the Supreme Court uh, is saying and what it's not saying. The last thing we need is extrapolation here or people to add on uh, to the limitations uh, that colleges can can use to to get admission into their into their schools. The second thing we're going to do, uh, which we actually did uh, last week, is we're going to bring together the, the, the leaders from all, uh, all parts of the country to brainstorm together on best practices and lawful strategies they can use to increase diversity. And then we're going to also publish that. Uh, the head of admissions at Yale University is typical in pushing back against the effort to get rid of legacy admissions. And he says the process for selecting students for admissions, together with the process for selecting faculty and deciding what courses to offer, defines a campus community and culture. And what he's saying on the surface, at least, that we don't want our private university to be intruded on by uh, the government. What's really behind this, in your view? And is Yale, what is Yale trying to preserve by, by right. trying to fend off this effort against legacy admissions? Well, look, I, I, I very much respect universities' ability to think uh, independently. And, and I, um, as I said earlier, I, I can't, you know, in one uh, decision or one edict stop all legacy admissions. That's not how it works. We know that in California when they passed a proposition – Uh, blocking affirmative action, the enrollment of black and brown students dropped. And they worked really hard to try to get those numbers up. What I can tell you is, and by many college presidents themselves, they want to revisit legacy admissions because they say if, you know, race can't be considered, then your last name shouldn't be the deciding factor either. Um, And I think there's merit to that thinking. But I also think we shouldn't stop there. I think we need to start thinking more broadly about how we're making sure the pathway to higher education is more accessible. But I've seen too many students in my experience as a K-12 administrator, too many students rule out college by 6th, 7th grade because they felt that the admission process and the cost of college was prohibitive. Now, some Republicans, including Tim Scott, who's running for president, 
have agreed that legacy admissions are really a problem. Do you think the Republican Party as a whole is as serious about reform on this issue as the Biden administration and other Democrats in Congress? You know, I, I, it's really difficult for me to get in the head of the uh, folks who are um, running for office or what their motivations are. I can't speak to his his rationale. But what I can tell you is my experience as Secretary of Education, um, even on issues that uh, are as bipar- very bipartisan uh, at the ground level, like career pathways, providing some support to those who are struggling to make ends meet, We've gotten nothing but opposition. We've gotten nothing but lawsuits to, to the point where the hypocrisy is so it, it blatant. We have folks who are blocking or complaining about uh, their own constituents getting $10,000 in debt relief when they're struggling to get back on their feet after the pandemic, yet they're receiving and they're welcoming over a million dollars in debt relief themselves. You know, I'd love to think that there are some issues that we can come together and really just focus on what our students need, what our families have been asking for. Um, So I'm hopeful, but I'm not optimistic given the track record of lawsuits. I I wonder if you think, as as I sometimes do, that we spend so much time thinking about college admissions as as the crucial thing here, when in fact maybe the problem is is lower down in terms of age. I live in liberal New York City. And it seems to me that it can be argued that in New York City, as liberal as it is, as liberal-minded as it opposes to be, may have one of the most segregated school systems in the country. And I don't think that just goes for New York City. Um, How does that end? That seems infinitely more complicated. This is an area of passion for me. Um, Yesterday, I was on an airplane and... uh, I was talking to someone who's a local board member in a in a district. I won't ne- mention the district because I didn't tell him I was going to be mentioning him on a on a national interview. <laughs> <laughs> but he was a local board member who was telling me that he was having a hard time in his district because the local zone, zoning ordinances prevented uh, mixed income housing, and that was their way of making sure that. Um, only folks that had an income of cer- certain amount came into those communities. Uh, schools are segregated because communities are segregated. Schools are only a reflection of the community in which they're embedded. So if you have, and, and I appreciate efforts to create diverse learning environments, K-12, but oftentimes what ends up happening is we put black and brown kids on buses for 45 minutes bring them into another community where they're not, they don't live in that community. They don't have after-school programs in those communities. That, that's not their home. They're not playing in the parks with those kids in, that, in those neighborhoods because they got to get back on a bus and go back to their community. So we're creating diverse learning environments um, artificially through our schools instead of having diverse communities. Let me ask you if you think that the decline in influence of the SAT is a good thing or a bad thing in this effort to try to level the playing field. You know, if everyone had the same access to SAT coaches and everyone had access to the same coursework that led up to preparation for the SATs, I, I wouldn't have – it would be an easier way to – it would be easier for me to answer but, but that. But I think you, I think you can't – we can agree that it's going to be impossible exactly. to, 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 so to, to, point to is, legislate a, a complete equality in, in America. My point that I was going to get to yeah. was there are some inherent bias in – those uh, uh, data. Uh, 
Now it's good to have a, an understanding of how what the students have mastered or what uh, what their uh, functioning is, but that's more a product of the ability for the districts that they came from to prepare them. And we're dealing with students who have had substitute teachers for a majority of their experience because of underfunding in K-12 education. Don't hinge everything on the SATs. So there has to be support at the K-12 level, and that's what we're fighting for with our Raise the Bar plan. We're pushing for literacy and numeracy. We're pushing for better pathways to higher education for our students. We need to raise the bar, not lower expectations. But also college completion. And I just said last, last week we, uh, we uh, announced $45 million for college completion grants to help those students get the academic support that they need to finish college. Because we know college graduates will earn on average a million dollars more than students who just graduate high school. And that's our goal, to open up higher education to more students. You know, I, I know that you're devoted to increasing diversity uh, around the country. Um, Texas has a system of accepting the top 10% of seniors from every high school to the University of Texas. Do you think something like that um, would yield a more diverse pool in other universities around the country? Yeah. You know, uh, I think that's a great way of keeping your uh, higher-performing students from high school in your state. It makes a lot of sense. But on the flip side, I'll also say we have to be cautious because not all high schools are built the same. Not all K-12 systems are built the same. Um, as a matter of fact, the achievement disparities that we have in schools that serve predominantly black and brown students is glaring. And sadly, as a country, we've normalized it. We've normalized the fact that black and brown students on average for the last 25 years have been performing 30 points less. So does that mean that we're, um, uh, again, perpetuating uh, an inequity that unless we have our K-12 systems pr producing outcomes that are equivalent, we should be careful not to um, uh, discount students who are in, in underperforming or students who are not getting the interventions or supports that they need and maybe are not as high performing, not because they don't have the capacity, but because the school system doesn't have the support to provide them. Mr. Secretary, there's no perfect analogy with any other country, but when you look around the world and the education and so educational and social systems that are available to study for comparison, who gets it more right than this country? You know, I recently had a... Um, an international conference uh, of education ministers from all over the world. And, you know, some of the conversations is they, they look at education as an investment in their country. So what does that translate to? Investing in a highly qualified workforce, whether that's educators, uh, leaders, they invest in their development. The stronger the workforce is, the better product you can provide the students. In other words, you're talking about teacher salaries. Professor salaries, teacher salaries. Um, if we've normalized in this country that teachers drive Uber on the weekends to make ends meet, we've failed. And is that, the reason, is that the reason our test scores are, are, are sinking? Look, all the research says if you have a highly qualified teacher in the classroom, that's the biggest influence within the building that you could have on student achievement. Second only to parents so when you invest in your educators, when you focus on hands-on learning where students are learning by doing, and when you make connections to higher education where you're not in a lifetime of debt, that's how you lift education, and that's how you lift the country. 
not everything requires a four-year degree. So if we invest in career and technical education and pathways to some of these careers that are coming that are, you know, you'll start off making $85,000, $90,000 a year without a four-year degree. And then you can continue to go on to your education and now have a salary that helps pay for it. Mm -hmm. You know, not only will we fill those positions that are going to become available, millions with the work in the last, uh, in the last two and a half years with the uh, Biden-Harris team. That's what we're working on, fixing a broken system and helping students graduate with options. Mr. Secretary, thank you so much. Good talking to you. Take care. Miguel Cardona is the U.S. Secretary of Education. We'll continue looking at the ripple effects of the end of affirmative action and the question of legacy preferences in just a moment. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you are not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. I'm Ross Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. What is it about Dana-Farber that makes it such a powerful adversary against cancer? It's hundreds of Dana-Farber researchers and clinicians making new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber discoverers. At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, nothing is as effective against cancer as a relentless succession of breakthroughs. Go to DanaFarber.org slash everywhere and see how what we do here changes lives everywhere. Hi, it's David Remnick. If you're enjoying this podcast, you might enjoy even more of what The New Yorker has to offer. Becoming a subscriber gives you unlimited access to The New Yorker, including Pulitzer Prize winning reporting, insightful cultural commentary, and fiction and poetry. You'll also enjoy our delightful cartoons, crossword puzzles, narrated stories, and much more. This past year, our readers were gripped by Ronan Farrow's profile of Elon Musk, Heidi Blake's extraordinary tale about Dubai's runaway princesses, and much more. Visit newyorker.com to gain access to all this and more. Use the code POD15, P-O-D-1-5, to secure a 15% discount on a yearly digital subscription. That's P-O-D-15 for a 15% discount. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. We're talking today about higher education, specifically who gets into selective colleges and how they get in. Since the Supreme Court banned the consideration of race and admissions in June, 
a few schools voluntarily stop considering another factor, legacy status. That is, some form of preference given to children of alumni or employees. One of the first to end legacy admissions in selecting its next class was Wesleyan University, a small liberal arts school in Connecticut. The dean of admissions there is Amin Abdul-Malik Gonzalez. You know, I'm an alum. Um, I'm a person of color. I I came to Wesleyan as a first-generation low-income student um, and have actually four children, two of whom are, you know, one to college or through college already, one in college and two more to go. So this is obviously very close to home for me, both personally and professionally. Um, And I fully support it because I want for my children and for others to have complete ownership of their experience, to know that they're there because they deserve to be there, not simply through association. Admissions officers like Gonzalez, who have to select the next group of students under very different circumstances, now have a complicated problem on their hands. Gonzalez talked the other day with The New Yorker's Jeannie Sook Gerson, a law professor at Harvard who's reported on the admissions process. What about the purported benefits of legacy admissions? I think schools have talked about the way that a multi-generational representation in a student body could add to a sense of community and loyalty to the institution, and then it could translate into financial donations and investment in the institution. Is there any nervousness that you might have or the school might have about about that aspect kind of eroding? Yeah, I mean, I you know, so far the responses have been, you know, overwhelmingly positive. Um, and I know President Roth is confident that um, he'll be able to raise money on the strength of our living our values and being um, consistent. Uh, but we haven't, you know, we're, we're obviously re- you know, sometime removed away from the, the results uh, of the decision in that way. Are you of the view that legacy admissions did have a disparate racial impact at Wesleyan or elsewhere? Uh, I think it'd be hard to argue that it didn't, just given demographics. You're talking about, in some cases, centuries of access and opportunity for um, white Americans, right, who who had access to selective admission and not much more than, you know, the last 50 years or so in some places like Wesleyan and, and a couple of others that, that were very intentional um, about diversifying their student bodies. Legacy admissions, as you said, is one factor among many that would have previously been considered. And now you've got the Supreme Court saying you can't use race as a factor. So is legacy admissions and putting an end to that part of a solution that you envision for bringing more diversity than might be possible um, after the Supreme Court's decision? Is it is it one step in in a, a multitude of moves that that you might be considering. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think it's both symbolic and and potentially substantive in terms of signaling, you know, our value to not have unearned, um, individually unearned benefits. Not like not the parents, but the students themselves, simply through association. We will certainly still have a number of alumni, children, and legacies in the class, but it won't be, um, as I said earlier, as if we have any set-aside spaces or automatic, you know, benefits or quotas, you know, assigned to them. Mm -hmm. So what else are you planning to do other than end legacy admissions in order to address the fact that race can no longer be used as a factor in admissions? Sure. So, you know, we're we're not more than a month, just about a month removed from the decision. We've been anticipating this, you know, reality or possibility for some time. We gathered a, a task force, made sure to discuss and share with our community, share with faculty, staff, students, 
you know, have communications in place to, to be prepared to signal. Um, and then also to back up our messaging with clear, concrete evidence of our commitment. And now we're going to scaffold out the other things that were that President Roth announced in that statement, you know, outreach to community-based organizations, transfer to veterans, you know, our international commitment to the African Scholars Program. So all of those things um, were material signals and, and, and commitments that we're going to continue to work toward this year and beyond. For us, it's never been reduced to race and ethnicity. It's been political thought, background, faith, um, you know, intellectual, you know, of all dimensions. And so we'll continue to, to recruit in those ways um, and that give us the best opportunity to build the classes in the community um, that, we're, that we're committed to. So recruitment of minority students is one method that you're emphasizing. Is there anything else within the admissions process that can be done to increase the representation of underrepresented students? Sure. And, and this, this issue has gained quite a bit of attention, as, you, as you're likely aware. You know, the, the, in the immediate sort of aftermath of the decision, there were announcements of, you know, supplemental essays and, and ways in which, you know, offices and admission, you know, in, institutions were going to try to suss out important information that would allow them to um, select diverse groups. We have not had a supplement as part of our process for several years um, and decided deliberately um, not to introduce another supplemental essay um, because we feel that within the realm of the three applications that we consider, there are essay topics that give students the ability to tell their story in their own words and to highlight the kinds of things that the court allowed for, you know, skills, talents, characteristics consistent with mission. Um, so we didn't need to create yet another you know, not barrier, but create another expectation, if you will, that if you multiply that by the number of schools students are applying to, that can be a potential barrier. If I'm applying to 10 institutions and each of them have their own supplement, you know, that is going to be time consuming. It's going to require thought um, and, and some bandwidth. So we made the decision not to do that. Um, we're thinking along other lines uh, about you know, messaging and engagement. Um, and we'll have to see how teachers and counselors understood and understand the decision and how they follow up with the recommendations that they write and how they advocate for and support students in the process. That's going to be important. So you, you talked about different types of messaging. Um, can you give some examples of the kind of messaging? Sure. I mean, I think to begin with, it's the idea that you know, we value, while we cannot consider race in selection, we value racial and ethnic diversity, and, and we should not have to compromise on that value. You know, one of the concerns in the immediacy of the aftermath was that institutions would pull back, would retreat out of fear of litigation or other concerns and sort of compromise on their own values and say, you know, we're going to go race neutral across all dimensions, Right rather than stand up and say, we recognize that there are educational inequities and some of those are tied to race and experience um, and we can create space and opportunity for students in ways that comply with the law, but that are also consistent with our values. So speaking of complying with the law, um, in the aftermath of the Supreme Court decision, some people, um, including a lot of conservatives, were saying the Chief Justice Roberts' paragraph about how you can consider essays and experience just created a giant loophole in which admissions officers will continue to just do what they were doing 
and just do it in the form of reading people's essays and just consider race that way. What do you think about that? So it, it's an interesting question in part because, you know, what it relies upon is the the assumption, I would say, that stu- that all students are going to choose to share this particular element of their identity, right? You can consider race if it comes in the essay, if that's something that a student chooses to share. We don't want students to be forced into corners where they feel they have to write about their racial identity, if that that is central to their existence, of course, a part of their reality. But if a student wants to write about their passion for computer science or for dance or for something else, you know, for family, they should not feel that the only way to have that element of their diverse background registered is to be reduced, you know, to a single part of the application. From the vantage point of an admissions officer, do you think there is a real difference between looking at an essay and just gleaning from it, this person is a member of an underrepresented racial minority, like this person is Asian, this person is Black, versus looking at an essay and saying this person has had an experience of being Black that shows certain characteristics like resilience and, you know, persistence and things like that. Do you think there's a real difference between those two things? I, I I think there are differences across all kinds of dimensions because admission is more art than science. What I was alluding to earlier was the fact that while status could be recognized in terms of a, a student's background, whether Asian American, Caucasian, African American, yes, that affiliation or status would be recognized. But the understanding of that student's background experience and potential is framed through their environment, through their you know, secondary school experience, their personal circumstances, their background. So it's not simply based on that affiliation alone that checks the box and sort of gets and tips the scale in that way. A student who's not otherwise qualified wouldn't be admitted simply because they check the box, right? But understanding that there might be things that impact um, access, opportunities, things of that sort that are affiliated, that are related to their race, ethnicity, and community. Like those things are contextual considerations that we take, you know, pains to try to make sure that um, we better understand and can appropriately consider students in those environments. Are there any other universities or colleges or institutions that you consider to be models or um, schools have that had gotten it right somehow, um, or any any institutions that you've learned from in kind of redesigning your admissions process in, in response to the Supreme Court's ruling? So I, I would say it's, it's, it's a great question, but not an easy one to answer in part because, um, you know, because this is confined to selection, right? The ruling was confined to selection and there are very clear concerns around collusion. Um, no one is sharing or committed to the idea that we would provide, you know, a one-size-fits-all solution for everyone to adopt. Um, I will say that holistic admission is something that many selective environments have done for many years, and there are best practices in that space that are not in the space of collusion. You know, as I said earlier, the triangulation of the required components of the application, a commitment to um, individualized review, those are things that we do talk about very openly and candidly because they're not institution-specific, but in terms of, you know, who has done this particularly well, um, to be quite honest, I, I don't know that anyone is at a point where they can say that they have, you know, have the, that they have the secret sauce. So in, in states such as California that previously got rid of race-conscious affirmative action, we have seen 
the results and people haven't been super inspired by those results in terms of diversity and and people are fearing that we're going to see something similar at all the other schools now in the different states. Um, how optimistic or pessimistic should we be? I don't think that we can or should expect better results when we've introduced more variables and barriers, right? I, I'm not a pessimist, um, but I'm a realist, you know, and, and I know that previous experiences at, uh, in other states that have banned affirmative action, you know, have not, to your, as, your, as you alluded to, have not been positive. So why would we think now that we're going to achieve um, or even match or maintain the kind of diversity that we had prior unless we make very concerted efforts, which we're committed to doing, but we won't again know because it's speculative, right? The, the landscape has shifted dramatically in higher education over the last four to five years, in part because of the pandemic, right? And also because of adoptions of test optional policies, because of um, student behavior, applicant pools in some cases have, you know, not doubled, but have gone up dramatically. Based on what we know now, I'm not expecting that we're going to be at the same place. I'm expecting that we're going to commit, you know, and make every effort and certainly hope that we reach our goals. Um, but it's going to be a tall order for, for a lot of us. I mean, thank you. Jeannie, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Amin Abdul-Malik Gonzalez is Vice President and Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid at Wesleyan University. Jeannie Sook Gerson just published an essay called The End of Legacy Admissions Could Transform College Access. And you can read that at newyorker.com. I'm David Remnick, and that's our program for today. See you next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbes of Tune Yards, with additional music by Alexis Quadrado and Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Frida Green, Adam Howard, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, Louis Mitchell, and Gofen Imputibuele, with guidance from Emily Botin and assistance from Mike Kutchman, Michael May, David Gable, and Alejandra Deckett. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Chirina Endowment Fund.